we continue in worship this morning with the, the preaching of God's word, I wanna invite you to turn to Genesis 19, where our passage comes from this morning. Uh, I'd like for us to read it together. We'll begin in verse 15 and go down from there. You can follow along in your copy of God's word on the screens behind me or in your bulletin as well. This is what it says, Genesis 19, beginning in verse 15. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. Skipping down to verse 23. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities in the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. God, I thank you that it is inerrant. It is without flaw, without fault. It is entirely true. God, I thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us through your word. That through this book that we study together, you communicate to your people. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be with Pastor Kevin as he preaches this morning, that he would just be an instrument for your kingdom, God, that you would grow. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be with us, that we would have ears to hear, that we might know you better, God. In your name we pray, amen. Amen, thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you for being here in worship today. And if you are in our overflow room or if you're joining us online, thank you for being here as well. Today we are continuing our series on Abraham called Developing a Faith for All Seasons. So if you've been here with us, you know that we're talking about what can we do for God to develop within us the kind of faith that works when times are going really well and when things are not going so well? What kind of positions can we put ourselves in to let God work in our lives so that our faith is strong when we're on the mountaintop and when we're, 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 when we're in the valley? What can we do so that we have a faith that works in all seasons? And admittedly, one of the obstacles to a really strong faith in God is when we look around and we see injustice in the world. When we look and we see the wicked prosper or when we see evil succeed, when we see people who are far from God and they seem to be living very well and we're trying to follow God and we're struggling, when that happens, 
admittedly, we look at God and we say, what's up? God, are you paying attention? The evil, they're living at ease. They're doing well. And God, I'm following you and things aren't going so well. God, aren't you a God of justice? We're told as kids growing up that cheaters never win, but we look around and that's not real life. You look around at our world and we see cheaters win all the time. One of the stories that we in this part of the country love to tell is a story of the 2017 World Series. The Houston Astros won that World Series in seven games against the Los Angeles Dodgers. However, they cheated. They were stealing signs from the catcher. They put in the outfield a high-powered camera with a super zoom lens on it to get the signals of the catcher. They would get those signals, relay those signals to someone in the dugout who would then beat on a trash can so that the batter could hear based on the signal of how many times the trash can was beaten on, fastball, curveball, changeup, whatever. Now, later, the Astros were fine for that. However, they did not lose a World Series title. You can tell me cheaters never win. They won. A similar thing happened in 1919 when the Cincinnati Reds played the highly favored Chicago White Sox. Turns out, Reds won that World Series, but later it was discovered that several White Sox players were paid to throw those games. The, they were fine. They were banned from baseball. However, the Cincinnati Reds kept their World Series title. You can say cheaters never win, but cheaters won. We can think of story after story in the sports world, in the financial world, life in general, where people cheat. They cheat in the financial world. They cheat on their spouse. They cheat in life, and yet they get away with it for years. And those are just the stories we know. There are countless other stories, hundreds of other stories, and we don't know about them because they're still getting away with it. And, and, and we know that there are those who are doing evil, wicked things, and they're not being judged, getting away with it. They're not feeling the consequences. And as much as those stories upset us, you know, the ones out there, the sports team, the guy in high finance, those individuals, as much as those upset us, what really upsets us is when it's personal. When it's someone in our circle. You know, when the guy who is an absolute jerk gets the date with a really pretty girl and you're at home on Friday night alone watching Netflix, that's when you're upset. Or, or when the girl who is mean as a snake in your office gets the promotion because she kisses up to the boss, even though you're way more qualified and you should have gotten that job, she gets it. You feel like injustice has been done to you. Or the guy who is anti-God, anti-Christian, makes fun of you for going to church, cusses like a sailor, cheats on his spouse, brags about it, is an absolute jerk, but he makes the big sale, gets the big commission, gets the raise, gets the company car, gets all the pats on the back, and you're struggling to make ends meet. That's when we look around and say, God, are you kidding me? God, how come they're getting away with it and nothing's happening? 
In fact, when those things happen, we're often tempted to say along with the psalmist, how long, Lord, will the wicked, how long will the wicked be jubilant? Or we'll say along with Job, why do the wicked live on growing old and increasing in power? Or maybe like Jeremiah, in a moment of brutal honesty with God, we want to say, yet I would speak with you about your justice. God, I would question you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? Injustice bothers us. In fact, this is one of the proofs of the existence of God. The fact that injustice bothers us. Nowhere else in creation do we see this. Only mankind, when God created the world, received the stamp of the image of God. Only mankind, no other part of creation, received the stamp of the image of God. Nowhere in the animal world do you see this sense of justice being longed for. In the animal world, might makes right. And that's it. You do not see a gazelle taking a cheetah to court and saying this cheetah chased down and killed and ate my mom and I feel like that was an injustice and so I'm taking this cheetah to court, you know, because the cheetah killed my mom. You don't see that in the animal world. Nowhere else in all of creation is there this desire for justice except among mankind. And the reason is, is because we have received the stamp of the image of God and God is a God of justice, which is why when we look around and we see injustice in the world, it bothers us and it makes us say, God, why are the evil allowed to continue in their evil? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do those who hurt others continue to live at ease? In the passage that Stephen read earlier, we see these twin cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. They were incredibly evil. In fact, I did not allow Stephen to read most of the passage because it is so awful. It is PG-13, maybe headed towards R. I just did not feel like in this setting it was appropriate to read all of the things that were happening in Sodom. It, it was depravity on crack. I mean, it was as, as low as you can get. It was as rough and as awful and as perverted as it comes. Sodom makes Las Vegas seem like this old Puritan town. It was absolutely evil. And for years and years and years, people would come into Sodom and they would be abused and they would leave the city of Sodom shaking their heads saying, how can God allow that to continue? And for years and years and years, this went on until finally God had had enough. And the passage Stephen read earlier, we see God's judgment finally came. Here's just a portion of what he read. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. 
Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. The text here says that burning sulfur rained down from heaven. Exactly what that looked like, exactly the cause of that is not exactly sure. Did God create some sort of earthquake that then allowed burning sulfur to come down. Some have guessed that maybe it was some sort of cosmic deal with meteorites that came down. We're not sure. Here's what we know. That God's judgment came and it completely destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was like an atomic bomb that had gone off. There was nothing left, not even vegetation. And the wicked prospered no more. We read this and we see that God finally put an end to the wickedness of those two cities. However, we also know that for years and years and years, the wicked prospered. That for years, judgment did not come. The evil continued to increase in their power and their sin knew no limits. When evil succeeds, when wickedness triumphs, when cheaters get their way, when abusers live at ease, it makes us scratch our heads and say, God, are you there? Why are you letting them get away with this? Today, I want us to ask and answer two questions. These are on your message map, if you've got that with you. The first question is, why do the wicked prosper? So why does God allow injustice to continue? And the second question is, what should we do when the wicked prosper? What should my reaction be? What should my next step be when I see the wicked prosper? And thankfully, the Bible answers both of these questions. So here's the first. Why do the wicked prosper? First of all, it is for God's greater purpose. There are times that the wicked are allowed to continue in their wickedness because it is part of God's greater plan. We see this very clearly stated in Scripture. Uh, you, you see that, that God used the Egyptians uh, as part of the story of the people of Israel. Many times he would allow wicked nations to rise up to punish Israel because they had been disobedient and had strayed away from God. We see this in the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. Um, in that book, Habakkuk describes how the southern kingdom called Judah had turned their backs on God, how they had ceased to worship God and had chased after these other nations. And God gave Judah warning after warning after warning and they would not listen. And so finally God judged Judah in this way. He said, I am raising up the Babylonians, these evil, wicked people, that ruthless and impetuous people, who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. Habakkuk makes it very clear. Uh, the Babylonians were a ruthless people. Uh, they seized dwellings not their own. They stole from other people. They are absolutely wicked people, and yet they were prospering. Why? Because they were a tool for God's greater purpose. God said, I'm allowing them to prosper because I'm using them to teach my children a lesson. 
Centuries before that, when the Israelites were in Egypt, enslaved in that nation, God said through Moses to the Pharaoh of Egypt, to the king of Egypt, these words. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So here's the question, Pharaoh, why do you have power? Pharaoh, why are you succeeding? Pharaoh, why is it that you prosper? God says, because, Pharaoh, I have given you this power. I have given you this prosperity. Because through your power and through your stubbornness and your wickedness, I'm going to do something great. So that my name will be proclaimed for generations to come. Here's one of the truths that we hold on to when injustice happens. Nothing happens outside of God's sovereign plan. God is in complete control, and when the wicked prosper, God has a purpose in it. Secondly, the reason the wicked prosper is because God is patient. Peter put it this way in his second letter. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. One of the reasons the wicked prosper is because God is patient with the wicked, giving them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to come to repentance. Over the course of this series, we've seen Abraham and Lot interact with Sodom. Abraham specifically met with the king of Sodom. The people in Sodom, the leaders in Sodom would have known about God, the God of Abraham. They would have known that what they were doing was evil and wrong. And they had opportunity after opportunity to repent. God could have destroyed Sodom years before. Yet, according to Peter, God was patient with these people, giving them opportunities to repent. So, why does God allow wicked to prosper? Second question is, what do I do when the wicked prosper? How am I to react when I see injustice, when it happens to me? Number one, remember that I was once wicked too. Ephesians 2 says this, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the, the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Paul's very clear here that outside of Christ, there is wickedness in all of us, that we are all deserving of wrath. And if you've read the chapter for today, you know that in that chapter, I talk about how much we want God to judge others when they sin, but we want mercy when we sin. How we want God to act swiftly and decisively when someone else commits something, some wrong act, but in our own lives, we want God to be patient and to be merciful. When we desire mercy for ourselves, we need to remember 
that because we were evil once too, that, that we have also deserved wrath and that the wicked, though they deserve wrath, that once we were in that same position. Secondly, when the wicked prosper, know your limits. Understand that you and I have a limited perspective on the situation. Our human limits and our sin nature only let us see part of the story. Uh, the Old Testament book of Job paints a really good picture of this. Job is the oldest book that we have in our Bible. Uh, Job lived about the same time as Abraham. And if you know the story of Job, you know that he was a very wealthy man who almost overnight lost it all. In, in just an instant, lost all of his wealth, uh, lost 10 children, and it all happened super fast. And then if that wasn't enough, on the heels of that, he became very sick. Had these sores that were very painful from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, all over his body, these painful sores. Job, for him, everything took this dramatic turn and it all just seemed to happen overnight. Now, he did not lose his wife, but in Job's case, that was not much of a blessing. In chapter two, Job's wife looks at him and says, why are you holding on to your integrity? Just curse God and die. She obviously forgot the whole in sickness and in health for richer or poorer part. Yeah, she didn't help matters. And then these three friends come to Job. And the majority of the book of Job is this dialogue between Job and his three friends. And just to summarize it for you, it, it is these three friends saying to Job, you have sinned, that's why God is punishing you. And Job saying to the three friends, I've not sinned. Well, you must have sinned. I promise you I haven't. That's the only reason for this. No, I've not. There's no other explanation. I've not sinned. And then you get to the end of Job, to chapter 38, and Job finally turns his questions to the Lord and says, Lord, you know my heart. You know the situation. I have not sinned. Why are you allowing all of this to happen to me? And here's how God responds to Job. Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. So sarcasm evidently is not a sin because the Lord is very sarcastic with Job here. Job questions God. God, why are you allowing this to happen? God, this is not right. And God says to Job, hey, when I created the world, were you there? When I laid the foundations of the earth, Job, you, had, you were not... You were not anywhere around. Job, when the angels sang for joy at creation, you did not hear them sing their song. Job, you may think you understand everything, but you do not. And I see the entire picture. When we see injustice happen, we need to remember that we see just a slice. We see a sliver of what is taking place. God sees the entire picture, both past, present, and future. 
And we may think that we know what is right. We may think what should happen is right. But God understands everything and will do what is exactly right. Number three, very uh, practical one for me, and that is practice thankfulness. Uh, When we see the prosperity of others and when we are struggling, it can become discouraging. When others succeed and we're struggling, when we're doing everything we can to follow the Lord, and yet things are still not going our way, it can become extremely discouraging. And we focus on what we do not have rather than what we have. A few years ago, I read a book by Gary Thomas called The Glorious Pursuit. If you've never read that book, I highly recommend it. It is a book on spiritual discipline. And most of the time when we think about the spiritual disciplines, we think about things like prayer and fasting and scripture memorization. Uh, He takes a different take on spiritual disciplines. And one of the spiritual disciplines that he lists in this book is the discipline of thankfulness. I had not thought of thankfulness as a spiritual discipline before reading this book. Thankfulness in my mind was a reaction to something good happening in my life. And I need to be thankful when something happens. I don't need to just run past it. I need to stop and give thanks. And and this author says, no, thankfulness is a discipline that we learn to practice all the time. And here's his proof text from Paul in 1 Thessalonians. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Notice Paul didn't say give thanks when things go your way. Give thanks when you're happy with life. Give thanks when God pours out his blessings on you. He wrote, give thanks in all circumstances. And then here's the exclamation point on it for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus so God what's your will for my life I can tell you give thanks really I was hoping for a little bit more on like where I should go to college or who I should marry should I take this job here's my will give thanks okay I'll remember to give thanks Lord when good things happen no give thanks in all circumstances well God why should I do that because this is my will this is my will for you in Christ Jesus to give thanks in all circumstances. I, this is hard. That is why this author I read calls it a discipline, not an emotional reaction. A discipline is something that takes practice. Someone who is disciplined in physical fitness, they don't just one day decide, I think I'm going to get physically fit, wake up the next morning, get out of bed, run 15 miles, and do it with ease. It takes work. It takes practice. Thankfulness is the same way. The more we practice it, the more it becomes a regular routine in our lives, the easier it is to practice. So instead of looking at what others are getting, the blessings that God's given to them, be thankful for everything that God has given to you. Practice thankfulness. And then finally, here's the last one. What do I do when the wicked prosper? The last thing is to have faith in God's judgment. To have faith in the fact that God will ultimately judge. God is a God of justice and righteousness. And God's ultimate justice will be perfect. Years ago, I 
Uh, I remember studying 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5 uh, talks about God's final judgment day. We're told throughout scripture that all of us will one day stand before the Lord. None of us will escape that final judgment. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote these words. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us, uh, due for us the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And I read that verse and it scared me to death. I thought about, I've, I've got to stand before Christ and give account for everything that I've done while in the body. That's going to take a long time. I know why eternity is a long time. It's going to take a long time for me to give account for all the things that I've done. And I read this verse and I had this mental picture of standing in a courtroom and there God sits behind the judge's bench wearing a black robe and a court reporter is reading through my list of sins and my head hangs low as I, as I listen to every thought and every word and every action being being pronounced there in that courtroom. And I read this verse and it scared me to death. Then three years ago, I had the chance to go to Corinth. And while I was in Corinth, I got the chance to visit the Bema in that city. Uh, the Bema was this outdoor structure, this platform. In front of it was a post. The Bema was the word that Paul used in this verse. When he said, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that word is literally the Bema of Christ. And the Bema is different than a courtroom. The courtroom was located close by. The Bema was not the courtroom. The, courtroom, the Bema was the place where the highest official in the city would sit. And in Roman cities throughout the Roman Empire, a Bema would be in the middle of the city, right near Main Street. And this is the place where the highest official would do three things. One, it was used for observation. And so if a, a legion of soldiers had gone off to war and they came back victorious, they would come into the city and they would parade in the city and all the citizens would come out and they would cheer for the soldiers as, as they paraded down Main Street. And the highest official in Corinth, it was the proconsul. The proconsul would stand on the Bema, just like a president or a prime minister would, would stand on grandstands to watch a military parade. He would stand on the Bema and he would watch the parade go by. So it was used for observation. Secondly, it was used for condemnation. If someone had done something to attack the city, to hurt the city, to cause a riot, or to attack an official, or to attack the proconsul himself, they would not go to court. Rather, they would come here to the Bema, and they would be told to kneel by this post. The proconsul would then pronounce judgment on the condemned individual. They would be strapped to this post and there they would be beaten for their crimes against the city, for their crimes against the Roman Empire, for their crimes against this highest official. It was used for observation. It was used for condemnation, but it was also used for commendation. So someone who is a friend to the city, who did something great for the city, or a friend to the proconsul himself, they would come and they would appear before the proconsul in front of the Bema. 
they would kneel just as the condemned person had kneeled. In fact, in Philippians 2, when Paul wrote that there will come a day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, this is the picture that Paul had in mind when he wrote that, uh, that passage, those verses. That in front of the Bema, the condemned would kneel and the one to be commended would kneel as well. The condemned would be strapped to this post and beaten, but the one to be commended would be told to stand. And then the proconsul would, in, would invite the commended to come up onto the stand with him and garland would be placed around his neck and gifts would be awarded to this person who had proven himself to be a friend of the proconsul. When Paul wrote that we must all appear before the Bema of Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, that is the most wonderful thing in the world. Because on that day, you will be told to kneel before Christ, and then he will say, rise. In Christ, you are a friend. In Christ, there is no judgment. In, in Christ, you receive rewards. In Christ, you are told to come up here and stand beside me, and Jesus will take his arm and wrap it around you and say, welcome, friend. If you're not in Christ, then that's not the story for you. But that can change today. In Christ, you are welcomed as a friend at the final judgment. And you cannot earn your way to that. You cannot be good enough to make that happen. You cannot be religious enough. You cannot give enough money. There is only one way, according to the Bible, the only way that we can be commended on that day is through a relationship with Christ. As we confess our sin to Christ, as we admit that we are sinners, as we believe that Jesus died in our place, took the punishment for our sins, as we confess that before the Lord and receive Christ into our life, that is when we get that promise that on judgment day, we will be commended before the Lord. Do you know Christ today? If not, today can be the day that your life is forever changed. And you can know from this day forward that when judgment comes, it will be a great day for you.